Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Uh, here's a joke I heard from a friend of mine. Why did the cow roll down the hill? Because it didn't have any legs. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Antoine Wilson, author of the brand new novel Panorama City. Yeah. We'll hear him read from it later in the show. That book is exponentially funnier than the joke he just told, by the way. Let's hope so. <laughs> and later, we'll speak with novelist Martin Amos about his new novel, Lionel Asbo, State of England. Also coming up, San Francisco band The Fresh and Onlys share their dinner party soundtrack. New Yorker regular Simon Rich shares his favorite heavenly humor. And in honor of the Jewish New Year, star chef Susan Feniger pairs Jewish food with everything. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The secret tapes causing so much trouble for Mitt Romney just 48 days before the election. China has begun cracking down on violent anti-Japan protests. The space shuttle Endeavour is heading to its final frontier. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Pat Morrison. She is a columnist for the L.A. Times. Pat what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? I'm talking about stone skimming, and if I had a Scottish accent, I'd do it for you. What? First of all, <laughs> stone skimming? Yeah. yeah, what's that? Well, it's not skipping. We're all Americans. We skip stones. We try to see how many times they'll bounce across a body of water. In Scotland, it's yeah. skimming. They go for distance, and they do it in huh. a rock quarry, an abandoned rock quarry, so, like, who's going to notice, right? <laughs> sure, so nobody <laughs> sees how nerdy they look. <laughs> <laughs> and that they're doing it in kilts. Yes. So what's the? why are you going to be talking about this. Well, they've held this competition for 15 years now at this old quarry. Now the man who owns it says, no more. You have to have insurance. You have to pay a fee. I mean, what does he think he is, American? Well, I guess this makes sense because they are throwing stones around, right? I mean, that's more dangerous than, say, tennis. Yeah, I understand why you'd want insurance, you know, against damage to the venue or the players. It's in an abandoned quarry. And these guys, (laughs) you know, they they toss telephone poles in their off time. What's the problem with little rocks? I don't understand it. That's true. Well, I think the problem problem is, why did they make this into like an organized sport? I mean, this is a casual thing you might do on a hike or on a date. They're the ones who created this mess. You two are guys. You'll do anything for a record. And a record That's in the true. Guinness book, doesn't it mean like free Guinness? In oh. Britain anyway, you'd think. What, so what are, what are the records? So there's the American one, which is the stone skipping. And the American record is 51 skips. That's unbelievable. Wow. And in Scotland, it's the distance. And it's like 60 meters. What What is that, like 180 feet? It makes sense that this is in Scotland because this probably originated when they were throwing stones at bagpipe players. <laughs> and it, <laughs> but you know what I love about this sport? If I could call it a sport. Okay. It has, you can't. It has the best <laughs> excuse ever. Uh, meaning? If, if you mess up. The Loch Ness Monster ate my stones. <laughs> of course. That's like a water hazard. Yeah, yeah, An, yeah. In a lake. <laughs> uh, Pat Morrison, thanks so much for the small talk. My pleasure, laddies. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with a booze chaser. First, the history part. This week back in 1965, NBC premiered a show that set a new standard for television. A really bad one. Mm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the mid-60s, it wasn't just rock music that turned weird. Take, for instance, TV sitcoms which for a few years there were kind of a trip. Shows like My Favorite Martian and Bewitched featured all-American Joes dealing with uncles from outer space. 
or with cute young wives who were secretly centuries-old sorcerers. But far out as they were, supernatural sitcoms scored blockbuster ratings, which might explain why, in 1965, NBC thought it'd be a great idea to air a comedy about a family man who buys a car that's possessed by his dead mother. Everybody knows in the second life we all come back sooner or later As anything from a pussycat to a man-eating alligator It was called, appropriately, My Mother the Car, created by a couple of guys named Alan Burns and Chris Hayward. And while the theme song was actually pretty groovy, decided she'd come back as a car Just about everything else about it was supernaturally awful. The thin plot lines yielded emaciated jokes so bad, even the laugh track didn't seem all that amused. Listen, just because I won't bring the car home is no, no reason for my kids not to talk to me. Why can't the kids play with your car? You play with their doll. <laughs> See, the show barely lasted a season. But talk show legend Johnny Carson kept the memory alive by making it the butt of jokes for the next decade. Meanwhile, critics crowned My Mother the Car the worst TV show ever made a title it held until 2002 when TV Guide ranked it merely second worst behind the Jerry Springer show. But from fertilizer can grow beautiful flowers. Chris Hayward went on to write and produce for the hit show Barney Miller. Alan Burns later created the Mary Tyler Moore Show, along with one of My Mother the Car's writers, James L. Brooks, who now produces the longest-running sitcom in TV history, Simpsons. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Travis Formont. He is the head bartender at Roast in Detroit, a city which is the mother of the American automobile. Travis, you're a bartender, so you must know a lot about bad ideas. So um, (laughs) did this bad idea inspire a good idea? What kind of cocktail did you decide to make after hearing about this? For me, the first thing that jumped out was the name of the car, the Porter, the 1928 Porter, um, which obviously makes me think of Porter beer. Okay. which immediately drew me to a classic cocktail, which is a flip. So the cocktail I came up with was a porter flip. What's a flip? The main ingredient people notice about a flip is it uses a whole egg. Okay. And traditionally, it's made with beer, egg, sugar, and then usually a base of rum, whiskey, or something like that. So when I think of eggs and drinks, I always think of that scene in Rocky where he drinks eggs. <laughs> yeah. But this drink sounds like a washed-up Rocky at the end of his career. Exactly. <laughs> Put a little alcohol in there. Yeah, exactly. Help him drown his sorrows. So tell me, how do you build this drink? For this particular one, we use a base of bourbon. We use Corner Creek. Okay. Then after that, we just add a little Demerara sugar, the whole egg. Then we add about an ounce and a half of porter. You do a dry shake on it first, which is just take a shaker, and we throw a coil in it that actually whips it up as you shake it. Oh, wow. And then we add the ice, we chill it down, then we just double strain it right into a cocktail glass. So this TV show, what do you think? Do you think uh, this could work in the modern age? Uh, Maybe a reboot, How I Met Your Mother, The Car, or something like that? I don't know. It'd be a stretch. I mean, it'd it'd have to have a lot of of reworking. But see, I thought this show idea was crazy when I first heard of it, but then I thought about Knight Rider. Exactly. Actually, that's the first thing I thought of, too, (laughs) honestly. But, I mean, that's a little bit cooler, right? That is cooler, but this car could have been Kit's grandmother. Yeah, true story. But little did she know that her grandchild would have David Hasselhoff sit on him (laughs) (laughs) for years. (laughs) So, Brendan, I watched a few episodes of My Mother the Car online. 
Mm -hmm. Everything about it is bad. <laughs> Everything. The lighting, the camera uh -huh. angles look wrong. Was Jerry Springer, could it, could it have really been worse than that show? <laughs> I never really watched Jerry Springer. Well, I, I watched it. Actually, they had an episode called Is That Car My Mother? <laughs> where they, it was amazing. They DNA tested a Toyota Camry. Oh, wow. Yeah. See, that sounds like Citizen Kane in comparison. <laughs> Uh, people, you can find all our cocktail recipes on our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is humorist Simon Rich. He spent four years writing for Saturday Night Live, the youngest writer they ever hired. He just put out his fourth book. Here he is to tell us about it and to list some divine comedy. Hello, thanks for listening. My name is Simon Rich, the author of What in God's Name. It's a new novel set in heaven. It's about Heaven, Inc., a corporation in the sky run by God, the CEO. He worked really hard on building the company. Lately, though, he's been pretty out to lunch. He plays a lot of golf, doesn't answer the prayers in his inbox, and he kind of secretly wants to retire to open up a restaurant. So I've been asked to come up with a few of my favorite God-related works of art, and uh, it was hard to come up with. There's a lot of good ones out there, but uh, I did my best, and I hope you like this list. So the first thing I picked is Ellen DeGeneres' first stand-up routine on Johnny Carson, where she does her famous telephone call with God. Yeah, hi, God. This is Ellen. <laughs> Ellen. DeGeneres. She was... Really young when she did it, uh, younger than me, I think, and uh, it completely holds up. Basically, she uh, gives God a phone call, asks him why there are fleas, because it's a question she's always wondered, and uh, God tells her the answer. No, I didn't realize how many people were employed by the flea collar industry. Over the course of the phone call, she also gets put on hold, because God's got to let somebody into the gate. And when she's on hold, uh, there's a lot of annoying hold music. Christian yeah, just sing along to your tape. <laughs> and I don't know, I saw that when I was a kid, and uh, for some reason it really stuck with me. It's, it's not a tape. They're good. <laughs> They're great. Yeah. I, I still think Ellen DeGeneres is hilarious, and I, I think her early stand-up is, is some of her, her funniest stuff. The second thing I picked is a much maligned, but I think underrated song called One of Us, originally performed by Joan Osborne. I don't think it's an intentionally a funny song, but I always, growing up, got a kick out of it. The lyrics are, what if God was one of us, just a stranger on a bus? I always thought it was great imagery that God would take a bus. Maybe he was trying to save money. Maybe it had to do with the environment while he was taking the bus. He didn't want to pollute his earth. But uh, I always thought, yeah, it was, it was an interesting choice. And then in the end, there's a great line. Nobody calling on the phone. No one's calling him on the phone except for the Pope maybe in Rome. And I always thought, how awesome that the Pope chooses to talk to God on the phone. We tried to create all these other pathways to talk with God, you know, burnt offerings, prayers, and, and really all that we need to do is pick up the phone. Except for the Pope may be in The third work of art I want to bring up that has to do with God is Clash of the Titans, a great movie that stars Liam Neeson as Zeus. That's the movie that is responsible for the famous internet meme, Release the Kraken. 
something that Nisan Azizu screams uh, into the camera. Release the Kraken! The, the Kraken is a monster that Zeus controls. I saw this movie in a theater, and at that point, the meme had already exploded, and people wanted Neeson to release that Kraken so bad. And then when he finally released the Kraken, the audience erupted in the cheers. And I don't even remember seeing the Kraken or what the Kraken looked like, but I was really happy that, that Liam Neeson finally released it. I would feel safer knowing a Liam Neeson-like God was up there because that's somebody who, who takes his job really seriously. He's releasing Krakens, clashing with the Titans. You know, that's definitely a safer version of God than uh, somebody who's just riding a bus or chit-chatting with Ellen DeGeneres. The guest list from humorist Simon Rich, his new novel is called What in God's Name. Enrico, I just realized something. Yeah. If God takes the bus, that could explain why he's always late when he's answering my prayer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that could be it. And why he's angry. God should really take high-speed rail, you know, but there's not that much of it in America, That's actually what I'm praying for, more high-speed rail. Whoa. Yeah. Catch-22. It's a conundrum. People, <laughs> speaking of God... We're going to take a break, and when we come back, star chef Susan Feniger celebrates Rosh Hashanah. We're doing brisket yakitori. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, star chef Susan Feniger does stuff to brisket that would make my Jewish grandma scream in outrage. And Antoine Wilson reads from his new novel about the naivest guy in the world. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself. They help run the Emily Post Institute in Vermont, and they are co-authors of the 18th edition of the Emily Post Manners Manual. Dan, Lizzie, it's been entirely too long. I yeah. know, I missed you guys. Indeed. I am going to make it up there someday, so I'm going to crash the Emily Post Institute. And then, boy, you're going to have a lot of etiquette to dispense. <laughs> he needs a can lot, I be a like the day learn. one guy in a weekend training, like what to do wrong guy? That would be awesome. When it can be the before. Yeah, I'll be the before guy. <laughs> Just give me some rosé and let me lose. I look forward to that. But uh, right now we have a bunch of listeners who need etiquette tips right away. Yes. Let us begin with Angie, who writes us via Facebook. How do you tell friends and family your big life plans don't include them, such as moving abroad? How do I make them feel I'm not belittling them and maintain strong friendships? It, that is an interesting question. However much you, you may feel like your departure from your hometown is a great escape, probably best not to review <laughs> that with your closest friends and family. So rule one, don't gloat. Tell people how excited you are, your plans for the future, you want to stay in touch, and, and invest a little bit in making a good goodbye. Good Goodbyes are important. Make sure that you spend yeah. time with people, that yeah. you let them know how important they've been to you and that you're going to take the time to stay and in that's touch. the good sample language to use yeah. so, not a, so not a Facebook post that just says so long suckers that's Later. Not, but that's right. interesting because I feel like in America we do have trouble saying goodbye people get really uncomfortable yep and, and trouble saying no it's sort of oh, an equivalent. The, Learning how bigger. to deliver a no well, an RSVP that's a no is just as Without important an as mm. uh, an RSVP that's a yes. So if they say, will you miss me? You say, no. No. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have accomplished two difficult tasks. There you are. <laughs> All right. Well, we have another question from JP in Salesville, Ohio. He asks, 
I often play a driveway basketball game called Knockout with friends. <laughs> As part of the game, when someone misses their shot, you can bash their ball away to make it tougher for them. I guess you sort of knock it far away so they have to go right. and grab it. Hence the title, Knockout. Lately, it's a very my polite friend, game. Yes, exactly. He has an etiquette <laughs> question about this. His friends have been giving him flack that he should tone down his knocking out. But he says this is the essence of the game. Mm. And we're all adults of roughly the same skill level. Is it possible to play Knockout too aggressively? Apparently, yes. <laughs> I just have this great scene in my head playing right now. of Suburban driveway court. And like, oh. yeah. dude, you're hitting the ball too hard. Yeah, like 40-year-olds. What do you mean? <laughs> like, crying. <laughs> one guy's crying. But, I mean, it serious? looks like they, he's asking, you know, they know what they're getting into when they're playing this game. So does he have to, you, can he just go for it? He's right that they are all of about the same level of play. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all of the same level of competition or that they have the same spirit when they play. And so my advice is that you can try to egg them on once and say something like, oh, come on, guys, you know, toughen up a bit. And if they really don't respond to that, like, oh, yeah. It's probably the problem. (laughs) Yeah. And if it's not fun for you, you don't have to continue. Just realize the wonderful world about being an adult is that it's not high school gym class. You get to go find another group to play with. (laughs) Yes, thank God. All right, here's something from Robbie. He uh, wrote to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, by the way. How do you suggest telling someone you know that they have a body odor problem? And there's Mm. a wrinkle to this. This is a fairly new friend and coworker, someone I actually like, writes Robbie, and it may be partially attributed to cultural differences. Please help. Ooh, ooh. Daniel. (laughs) This is a hard one, but it's also a classic etiquette conundrum. Mm, Okay. In fact, so classic, it's one of the sample problems in our business etiquette seminar series. And we even have some stats to back up the advice on this one. When HR departments do studies, 80% of people would rather hear about a personal hygiene issue from a coworker than a supervisor. So already this person's doing the right thing. They're thinking about how they're going to approach it. So you're saying you, you should, as a worker, you should approach this person. They would rather hear it from you. As Absolutely. A as yeah. a peer. Okay. And it's the broccoli on the tooth rule. If you can save someone the embarrassment do. The broccoli on the tooth rule. <laughs> so wow. the equivalent of the, the little <laughs> polite like indication there's something on your tooth is ask to talk to them in private. Tell them that it's something a concern that you have for them. But here's my question, though. How do you make that a broccoli on the tooth moment? Because a broccoli on the tooth moment is, hey, you got something on your tooth, by the way. Well, that's how do you, right. you can't so, just go like, Hey, by the way, you stink. No, but what, the way you couch it is you say, I know that if the situation were reversed, I would really want you to tell me. I wouldn't want someone like a client. But, you know, he does, Robbie says that this could be attributed to cultural differences. What if someone's like, I just, I don't smell. Do your best by simply offering up the advice. And if they're aware of it and they're choosing hmm. to ignore it, then that's pretty much something that they have to deal with the effect that that's going to have on other people. Yeah, right. You know, I find I have the reverse problem with people use so much deodorant, perfume, body wash yeah. that I am overwhelmed. And it I gives have... me a headache. <laughs> yeah. It does. So I guess you say, look, I'd want you to do the same for me. You smell pretty badly, <laughs> mm-hmm. but please do not use any apple mint body wash. Like, just keep it to neutral scents. <laughs> neutral scents. <laughs> All right. So that was a tough question. We're going to leave you. This is our last question. It's sort of an uber tough question. This is being asked by Patrick in Santa Monica, California. What is the toughest matter of etiquette you've been asked to resolve, Dan and Lizzie? Or maybe, heaven forbid, a request you couldn't handle? Oh, Gasp. I'll go first. This was something I noticed (laughs) early on with etiquette questions. If someone's asking about something that happened in the past— 
they're usually asking you to arbitrate a situation mm-hmm. and they want you to stand up for them or come down on someone else. People, they corner you and they want you, like I have had to say to people who call up the Institute, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not going to tell you that your friend is wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's, you know, <laughs> like, like, but I, she it's, used it's, her salad fork for <laughs> <your breakfast."> <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, it's like, I have to be like, I don't know this person. I'm only getting your side of the story. But I think we're looking for dirt here. What yeah. is, what is the thing? <laughs> from the past that yeah. was brought up that you could not resolve. Boy, you know, wedding invitations get heated. Wedding invitations? <laughs> wedding guest lists. Wedding guest lists get heated. So next to the Emily Post Institute, is there, are there a suite of offices with a therapist and a mediator? <laughs> a wedding planner. Live off you guys. Go next door, please. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. They are here once a month to tell you how to behave. Yes, and the rest of the time, we get etiquette tips from celebrities who may or may not know what they're talking about. Right, so roll the <laughs> dice and send us your etiquette questions. Our email's at dinnerpartydownload.org. Or call the Dinner Party Hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3460. to eavesdrop. Antoine Wilson won praise for his Rye debut novel, The Interloper, and for his online project, The Slow Paparazzo, in which he takes photos of places after a famous person has left. Here's Antoine with an audio snapshot of his new novel. Hi, this is Antoine Wilson, and I'm here to read from my novel, Panorama City, which is out this week. It's about a 27-year-old guy named Oppen Porter, a village idiot who wants to become a man of the world. He's recording onto cassette tapes everything he thinks his unborn son should know about being a man of the world. Here's Oppen's take on finances. I'd never received a paycheck before. I was just staring at it at the end of my shift when Francis asked me if I wanted to head over and cash it with him. We went to a storefront a block down from the fast food place. I'd seen it before. They didn't seem to be selling anything, and there were pictures of happy families all over it, along with cars and an airplane in the sky. I thought maybe it was a travel agency. It turned out to be more like a bank than anything, except the tellers were behind very thick windows. Francis went first. He cashed his check and took the cash and put it in his wallet. He said he was that much closer to getting his hands on a decent camera. He said once people could see what he could do with a camera, he wouldn't be a wage slave anymore. I cashed my check too then, and since it was only for one week instead of two, and since money had been taken out for my uniform, and since there were taxes and fees involved, the number was very low. Francis noticed this. He noticed the disappointment on my face. He pointed at the cash and said, that's why I don't work too hard. He said, that's why I just pile up as many hours as I can, Who gives a rat's tail whether the trays are getting clean or the burgers are warm? His words. I'm not the one getting rich. I didn't think I could actually do a bad job as Francis seemed to be pushing, but I did have to wonder how I was going to become a man of the world with so little money in my pocket. Later, much later, after Aunt Liz discovered that I'd been cashing my checks at the check cashing place, she went haywire and told me that their fees were outrageous, that they were leeches. And then she signed me up at her bank, where I also had to pay fees. 
After my next session with Dr. Rosenkleg, during which we talked about, as usual, whatever I felt like talking about, which that day was weather, bicycles, and knots your grandfather had taught me, Aunt Liz asked me what we'd covered, and when I told her, she couldn't believe Dr. Rosenkleg and I had not talked about my feelings or my father's death. She wondered aloud what she was paying him for. Having become more curious about such matters recently, I asked Aunt Liz how he got paid. She told me he was paid by the hour, same as me. And for a moment I felt, I don't know how to put it, camaraderie maybe, that Dr. Rosenkleg and I were both in the same boat. That is, we were both wage slaves. Just out of curiosity, I asked Aunt Liz what his hourly rate was. She was reluctant to tell me. Then she said, what's the harm, and came out with it. His hourly rate was substantial. I've always been good with numbers, even if words and letters elude me sometimes, so I was able to see, instantly, that one session, 50 minutes, that is, with Dr. Rosenkleg, was equivalent, financially speaking, to my entire first week's work at the fast food place. I wondered why Aunt Liz hadn't set me up with a job as a therapist. I have always been an amateur at talking and listening, but how hard could it be to turn professional? There wasn't any equipment involved. That night, my head combined and shuffled all of the words that had gone into it that day, and while brushing my teeth the next morning, I put two and two together, so to speak. No matter what we achieved in our therapy sessions, Dr. Rosenkleg got paid the same. He got paid for his time, which explained why he stopped so often to consider everything. The slower he thought, the more he got paid for each individual idea. Author Antoine Wilson, reading from his novel Panorama City, comes out this week. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media, where our hourly rate is free. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, folks probably wouldn't guess it from my name, but uh, I'm Jewish on my mom's side. I'm aware of that. You are. Though, of course, your primary religion is pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I do worship it. Uh, But that said, earlier this week was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Happy New Year to half of you. Likewise, to none of you. And uh, I was intrigued to learn that here in L.A., star chef Susan Feniger, who you may have seen on Top Chef Masters, was doing a Rosh Hashanah menu at her restaurant, Street. Interesting. Right? Because Street's menu is all about street food from around the world. This is She has stuff like Indonesian shrimp pot stickers. Delicious. I could not imagine how traditional Jewish food was going to fit on that menu. So I went over to talk to her about it. And I started by admitting I am not the most observant of Jews. Okay, well, I also grew up in, you know, a pretty not-that-religious family in Toledo, Ohio. But, you know, I went to temple on a couple of holidays. (laughs) Sure, you did the obligatory visits. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we certainly celebrate many traditions. And when we opened Street, we thought, wouldn't that be interesting to take, like, you know, Rosh Hashanah and put a little spin on it. Well, well, let's go with that. What are some of the traditional dishes that you're riffing on for those who don't I mean, know? So for an example, I mean, for me, I grew up in the Midwest, so, and maybe this is everywhere. I mean, of course we had brisket. Of course we did. Let me, let me ask you actually about brisket. It seems like any excuse to have brisket in a holiday, Jews will take. Yeah. Why brisket? Why specifically that cut of meat? 
you know, I, there probably is some tradition behind it, but it's a cut of meat that really works fantastic for entertaining. First of all, you can make it ahead. I mean, my mom used to make brisket, the whole brisket, the whole thing, slice it, freeze it, and then pull it out. It can sit and sit, and it's not going to go downhill. It actually can improve as it reheats. Whereas if you were to do like a filet, it can't sit, doesn't have that kind of shelf life. I just somehow, it just makes me smile to think of a Passover yeah. filet mignon. Yeah, that doesn't exactly. seem right. You wouldn't. Um, all right, so normally you would serve that. It would be kind of stewy, slow cooked. What, what are you doing tomorrow? So, tomorrow night, we're doing brisket yakitori, skewers of brisket with a little bit of an Asian spin on it. So it'll be grilled and with... Well, with it'll have been slow cooked first, and then we will finish it because it's not the kind of meat that you do fast cooking. So we will cook it, chill it, cut it, and then skewer it, and then glaze it. And we'll have a dipping sauce? Here, well, this is Sasha Alger, my partner. Hi. On the brisket, are we brushing it or serving it with the dipping sauce? It's actually glazed in the soy-based sake sauce that we're finishing with honey, and the whole brisket gets seared and then reglazed and baked in the wood oven, and it's amazing. Oh, my God. Sasha's helping me to be a better Jew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like it would win some people over to the faith, maybe. Um, but apparently I don't get to try that dish. Sasha's brought out something else. What am I looking at here? So we're starting off with a roasted fig flatbread. So we're cooking this in the wood-burning oven, loaded with caramelized onions, with figs, and the whole theme throughout our whole menu is we're using a little bit of honey in every course. Because honey is kind of the traditional sweet. It's like challah dipped in honey is a traditional treat at Shoshana. And I think it's to, you know, start off the new year sort of sweet and good luck. So we sort of included honey in each course. And, and the fig also, uh, you're supposed to eat a new fruit. Is that kind of what you're going for with the fig? Okay, I thought we were both saying we weren't very good Jews. <laughs> I did some research before I came here. Okay, is that true? Is that what it is? There, supposedly, you're supposed to eat a fruit that has just come into season that you haven't eaten yet over Rosh Hashanah. So, and I don't know, is our figs newly in season? It seems like I'm seeing them right around. Now, yeah, fresh figs are gorgeous right now. So, figs and fennel, and then we're finishing it with a honey yogurt over the top. So, very kind of Middle Eastern. Yeah. All right, I'm going to try. This is the fig flatbread and caramelized onions, caramelized which is always great on a flatbread. Here we go. Mmm. Right? Damn, that's good. I like how you get a little bit of bitter and then uh, the sweet of the fig. Mm. Oh, man, especially when I get to the yogurt. That is really yeah. good. I like the yogurt. I have to say, though, I'm, I'm looking ahead on this menu, and I'm getting a little concerned for dessert. I do not see a noodle kugel. For those who don't know, kind of a traditional Jewish, uh, like a dessert lasagna almost. Yeah, I mean, I think almost every noodle kugel I've ever tasted that's any good has got frosted flakes on the top. That must really? be a Midwest thing. I've never heard of that. Oh my God, that's so funny. My mom always topped it with sugar frosted flakes. You know, sort of fettuccine-like noodle. Eggs and cream and, you know, sugar and raisins and sour cream and then frosted flakes. That does sound actually incredibly awesome. It's fantastic. So what are you doing? So we're not actually serving it this year. We actually, Why not? Last, I know, last year, because, you know, we always try to change the menu and last year we actually did. It can be fantastic though, for sure. But so what are you doing for dessert? Here comes Sash so we can taste. Try that. Uh, what is this? What am I looking at? For dessert here, we're doing a baked apple, and we're stuffing it with a spiced cake, and it's going to be garnished with the toasted almonds on top. 
it's a spice cake, so like a honey cake, the yeah, traditional honey cake? Exactly, and it's stuffed inside the apple, and then it's baked. Which is awesome, because apples are another thing you're supposed to eat, so you're getting two for one on yeah, this one. Yeah, exactly, and then applesauce on the bottom. This is built for speed, this meal. You yeah. can like, just tick off all your boxes. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take a bite of this. Get a little bit of the hair. Put a little bit of the crema on there. There you go. <laughs> oh, man. Pretty yummy, mm-hmm. right? It is so beautifully autumnal, and Rosh Hashanah is all about autumnal foods. Yeah. But we happen to be going through a heat wave, and it's like 90 degrees out here right now. So I'm sort of having seasonal dyslexia right now. So, Rico, a lot of that stuff sounds really tasty. It was. But I had no idea that Frosted Flakes was part of a traditional Jewish diet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was missing out. Tony the Tiger was bar mitzvah. Oh, really? Yep. No, I did not. Him and Paula that. Abdul, surprisingly Jewish. <laughs> That's true. I knew I knew they dated, but I had no idea. <laughs> uh, people, we are going to take a quick break. Coming up, literary heavyweight Martin Amos asks the age-old question. Who, who let the dogs out? That's Dickens, right? I think so. All that and more when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear from the director of The Eye Has to Travel, a new documentary about fashion legend Diana Vreeland. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Martin Amos. England's Times newspaper named him one of Britain's 50 greatest post-war authors. Mm. He's written 12 novels, including London Fields and Money. He's also got a memoir, two short story collections, Jeez. and many books of nonfiction under his belt. He's an underachiever, basically, is yeah, what you're saying. You know, like his father, Kingsley. Uh, and I'm not finished here. His new novel is called Lionel Asbo, State of England, about a relatively innocent young man and his brutish, sociopathic uncle Lionel, who wins 140 million pounds in the lottery. Hmm. The other day, we met up to talk about it. Martin, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. In an interview you gave to the Paris Review a few years ago, you described the beginning point of a novel as a throb. I believe you were quoting Nabokov. And you said it starts off as a throb or a glimmer, an act of recognition on the writer's part. Is that how this book started? Well, it's how all books start, and I don't think you could proceed without it. It's a legitimizing frisson. And you think, here comes a novel. And uh, it's very often something you've read in the papers or a conversation you've overheard. In this case, it was three different elements that came together. One was the song, Who Let the Dogs Out, which I adapted to Who Let the Dogs In, because I'd read a terrible report about an act of revenge that involved unleashing two pit bull dogs, and also, in a problem page, a young man saying that he was having an affair with his grandmother. By problem pages, you mean kind of advice columns? Yeah, yes. I'm not surprised those two stories attracted you, but the idea of you knowing the song, Who Let the Dogs Out, I find pretty surprising. I just, (laughs) no, I've heard it, and it's pretty hard to forget once you have. Yeah. I read a lot of British reviews of this novel, and Lionel is is considered a yob, which is a term we don't use in the United States. Could you explain what a yob is? Um, It's back slang. It's boy backwards. Huh. And it means a lot. And what, do you know the history of why there is backslang? Well, you have it in your language. Uh, The word wonk is obvious backslang for no backwards. I didn't know that. So it's like a little sophisticated crossword clue in itself. Over the course of your novels, we meet many obs. What what is your fascination? Um, Someone once described a novel as like the bars of a cage. You could admire the tiger, its strength, its sinister eyes, without feeling any personal danger. 
I think I like characters who do things that I would never do, you know, mm. who are, are sort of bold and unpredictable in ways that you know, it wouldn't occur to me to, you know, to behave like that. This book has also been described as a satire, but you don't consider it a satire. Well, satire, what is satire? Being defined attractively as militant irony. <laughs> that is, irony that seeks to bring about change. I don't think that's very useful because books, poems, novels don't bring about change, except when there's a, a fluky confluence of historical forces. I just think I write irony, but with the dial turned up. Well, in this book, one of the things you turn the dial up on is pornography. Yeah. Uh, Lionel is a big fan of it. You've written about porn for a while now, and when you started decades ago, uh, porn was primarily in magazines. Now it's everywhere. What are your thoughts on its proliferation? Because it's almost like you can't turn the dial up anymore. Um, I'm too old to inquire decently into this, but uh, <laughs> pornography is a, a very mis misogynistic form, and it's also will have the effect of stylizing the love lives of the young. Anyone who's old enough to walk will have seen something of this. It's ubiquitous. And that's how they get their sex education now. It's not by no. dissecting a worm, as it was in my day. It's by watching these weird-looking, tattooed people uh, having sex. Yeah. Now, someone wants to find pornography as hatred of significance in sex. Hmm. And uh, that's worth thinking about. In discussing porn's threat on love, it brings to mind your essays about nuclear weapons, which you also talk about having the power to threaten love. Yeah, well, I, I've always thought that, that love has two opposites. One is hate, and the other is death. Don DeLillo's huge novel, Underworld, mm. is, is all about this, is the, the price we paid for that nuclear standoff when we were living in the age of deterrence. To have this cloud of death, to have this Cold War that you fight only when you're asleep, it's a a contest of nightmares, as Eric Hobsbawm called it. It's very difficult to love when you're sort of bracing yourself for impact. Mm. Um, so, yes, that was another attack on love. I, think. I find it interesting that you're a guy who is known for writing about some pretty unpleasant topics, often with glee. And yet, with these two topics at least, you've raised the alarm about the danger love faces. Why do you think you've cast yourself as, you know, a protector of love? Um, well, in my stuff, and it's only by looking at the implications of what you've done rather than having any program, but um, it's clear to me that what I value is innocence, which is in shorter and shorter supply, inevitably. I mean, when people say the world is getting worse, children no longer respect their parents, you can find that written in excrement on the walls of the cave. You know, they've been <laughs> saying that for billennia. <laughs> but you can say with accuracy that the world is getting less innocent incrementally. Yeah. You know, as, as experience builds up, innocence must be threatened. And um, it is what I value most. All right. Well, along with good conversation uh, on this show, we value the answer to uh, these two standard questions we ask of each of our guests. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Well, what horrifies you is, is when you're asked a question that you haven't been asked before, hmm. because then you have to really think. Oh, and, no. Hopefully and, I succeeded somewhat. Yeah, you right. did. Yeah, put the wind up me a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might not like our next question then, which is, tell us something we don't know, something you've never talked about in interviews before. It can be a fact about you or something about the world at large. Oh, uh, 
when we say we love a writer's work, we're always stretching the truth because what we really mean is we love about half of it. Hmm. And that goes for Shakespeare, goes for everyone. Why do you say that? Well, it just struck me as something that hadn't been said before and, and is true. And I'm sure there are many readers who like half my stuff. You know. What about you as a reader? Uh, you're famously a big fan of Saul Bellow. You only like half his stuff? Mm, and there are some writers who score very high with me. <laughs> Bellow and Nabokov, something like 14 out of 19, I think, are masterpieces. Yeah. Um, but that's... Very rare. You were discussing him recently in a different context, but I loved how you put it. You said, Nabokov's the sort of writer that invites you in, brings you his best bottle of wine, you know, serves you the best meal, and gives you the best conversation every single and time. The, and the easiest chair nearest the fire. Yeah. Whereas Joyce, you'd wander into his place, and he'd be off somewhere preparing a meal consisting of two slabs of peat around a conger eel. <laughs> he'd be in his socks naked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enrico, I'm still having a hard time imagining Martin Amos listening to this song. Like He attends poorly DJed weddings like everyone else. I can see him listening to the Oxford remix, The Dogs Were Released by Whom. <laughs> but this is this is a, of a different order. From whence came all these dogs. Exactly. <laughs> this song seems a little yob for him. And now, time for chattering class. This is where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party worthy subject. Today, the subject is the late fashion icon Diana Vreeland. And here to teach us about her is Lisa Imordino Vreeland. She is Diana's granddaughter in law, and her new documentary, Diana Vreeland The Eye Has to Travel, opens this weekend. And Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Rico. This is great to be here. I'm actually in London recording this, which is great fun. I know. You're, you're very lucky I'm sitting here in extremely hot Los Angeles. Have some tea for me. So, <laughs> yeah, for those who are not familiar with Diana, set us up here. Who was she, and, and why is she so important? She has been known as the Empress of Fashion. She was born in 1903 and died in 1989. And the concept of the fashion editor didn't even exist before. She really coined that term during her 26-year tenure at Harper's Bazaar. And I think the most referenced images in fashion are, are, are from those years at Bazaar. There was no such thing as a fashion editor? Not really. There was somebody, you know, as... as Richard Avedon once said... The photographer. Yes, the photographer once said before is just the society women, you know, who put hats on other women, and she really styled the clothes, had the collaboration with the photographers, and what Mrs. Vreeland most importantly gave to these photographers was this kind of possibility to dream and these ideas of these kind of way-out shoots. And we are talking some very extravagant shoots. I'm, I'm wondering if you can maybe tell the audience about one that you mentioned in the film. This was a shoot called The Great fur caravan where she basically shipped an entire crew to Japan for weeks, basically. That is a great example. That was based on the tale of the Genji. was the first book written by a woman. And it was a love story between a Japanese man and a Caucasian woman. And Mrs. Vreeland never read the book, okay? This is like a typical Vreelandism, okay? She's like, I never read the book. And so they had to go and look for Verushka's big love interest, and it had to be a big person because Verushka was... This is the model Verushka. She's like a million feet tall. A million feet tall in incredible shape, just so beautiful. Indeed she was. And so they search all over Japan, basically, and they finally find for her love interest... A sumo wrestler, a thin sumo wrestler. It was a sumo wrestler who was much taller than me. I mean, he was so tall that he couldn't uh, sit in the car. 
I mean, we had to take out the front seat, so he had his sitting in the back of the car. And that is the man you see in, in the pictures. Isn't he wonderful? And that's the one thing about Vreeland, is she knew you've got to give people what they can't get at home. Give them something that will just make them travel in their minds. Take them somewhere. You never met your grandmother-in-law, but... I am betting that there were stories that circulated around the family. I never met her. And, you know, there were there were not that many family stories because in a funny way, it's not that, you know, we would sit around talking about her. <laughs> but, you know, her son, Frecky, who was my father-in-law, was recently telling me that he, she was in Paris and she was going to meet Jackie Kennedy in Russia when they were working on the Russia show at the Costume Institute. I love that you can just toss that off. She was just going to go meet Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> That's a pretty good family story right there. That is a very good family story. And so he's said to me, I brought her to the wrong airport and we missed the flight. And not once did she say to him, oh, you know, how could you really mess this up? You know, she gets to the other airport, everything's been rearranged. And she says, oh, look at this plane. I love this plane. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I think I would probably have freaked out. Or <laughs> Yeah, I'm about to go and meet Jackie Kennedy and I may not get there in time. <laughs> I know. It's, but there's a That's... sense of being positive. You know, there's nothing, you know, negative. And there's a certain point when my, I have two uh, co-directors and editors, you know, we were kind of working on the arc of the story. And it was almost a puff piece at a certain point, because there's so many great stories of how she helped people, how she was supportive. But you can't really make a movie on that. Yeah, She was a positive person. And so the bad side about that is that she would never discuss negative things, and mm. that's something obviously difficult her sons had to deal with. Um, well, actually, speaking of not confronting reality, this brings me to my last question. There's a moment in the film where you show footage of Dick Cavett interviewing Diana Vreeland, mm. and he says, basically, why should we care what people wear? And, you know, the undercurrent of that is, you know, there's so much happening in the real world. Why should we focus on something as frivolous as fashion? And I would pose the same question to you. Well, you know why? I'll tell you, because it's true. Who does care about clothes? And she said it best herself. Uh, It's not about the new dress you wear, but it's about the life you lead in the dress. It's not just about fashion. Her message is really about transcending fashion. It's very indicative of the title of the film, which is The Eye. You know, Deanna Vreeland, The Eye Has to Travel, one of the longest film titles in history. (laughs) But it's something she said. It's about the mind traveling. It's about giving us a possibility to dream and the possibility for us to kind of believe in ourselves and believe in ourselves enough to do that thing we've been dying to do. Lisa Imordino Vreeland. Her film Diana Vreeland, The Eye Has to Travel, hits theaters this weekend. And there you go, everyone. We've been schooled about fashion. We met our guest of honor, mashed a bunch of cuisines together. There is but one thing missing for a perfect dinner party, some music to play. For that, we turn to Tim Cohen and Shade Sarton from the great indie band The Fresh and Onlys. They go on tour this fall to support their new album. Here they are to suggest a few tunes by other musicians. Hey, my name is Tim. My name is Shade. And we are The Fresh and Onlys. We have a new record called Long Slow Dance. And this is our dinner party soundtrack. Opening our dinner party, uh, we picked Candy Says, which is the opening track off the Velvet Underground's third and self-titled record. We picked it partly because it's a very sweet sentiment, and it's also a third-person sentiment, which is how I think you'd relate to uh, most people at a dinner party that you hadn't met yet. It's also an excellent opener to an excellent album. 
Obviously, they thought it was a good way to open an album and a conversation with people. One of the lines being, uh, I'd like to know completely what others so discreetly talk about. What others so discreetly talk about. It's sort of a dinner party sentiment in a way. The next track, the next chorus would be a song called Picnic on a Frozen River by Faust, the German band. It's off their album Faust 4. It's a beautiful song. It's really, it has a really patient beginning and an even more patient ending. It's a nice, uh, dynamic song with every possible flavor you could want from a song. Beautiful finger picking. It's a nice droney. Uh, synthesizer outro. Faust are one of the most dynamic rock bands in history. There's every bit dynamic as the Beatles. They could write any kind of song. I wanted to point out that it's a picnic on a frozen river, so I think our subconscious is working to come up with food-related items for our, our playlist. Uh, our next track is Sweet Thing for dessert. It, it fits right in line with the other songs. It's, this is Sweet Thing by Van Morrison off Astral Weeks. Sweet Thing is the, the song I always think of when I think of, uh, of that record specifically. It's rhythmically a really perfect song, sways back and forth in a really huge way. Beautiful, upright bass line. Doesn't seem to really commit to the song, which is pretty interesting. You know, being a bass player, you're always looking at the approach to songs, playing the bass in a non-conventional way. He exhibits a very patient vocal delivery in that song. He's, he knows that you're waiting for what he's going to say next. And on this song in particular, you know, he throws in these little counter melodies before he gets to what he wants to say. I always had this more lighthearted idea about what Van Morrison was growing up. That song specifically, Sweet Thing, kind of changed the way that I personally listened to Van Morrison. I sort of stopped hearing Brown Eyed Girl or Tupelo Honey in my head, and I started hearing something with a lot more depth. If we had to pick one of our own songs to play at a dinner party, I would go with No Regard. To me, it's, it's very palatable and in line with what we're doing. It references a lot of the music that we heard growing up and that we love. Don't ever wonder why fools fall in love. You're never going to break my heart. Though you were there from the start, ascending. Which really has nothing to do with food or dinner. But it's a song that I want people to hear. So if you come to my house for a dinner party, I'll just play it for you. Though you are very far. A dinner party soundtrack from Tim Cohen and Shade Sarton of The Fresh and Onlys. Their album Long Slow Dance came out earlier this month. And that's the dinner party for this week. Yes, next week, Project Runway's Tim Gunn joins us, among many other folks. Till then, keep up with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is assistant producer who makes the dinner party work. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our interns. Thanks also to Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the public radio show Marketplace. Bon appétit.